You're listening to the Catholic Psyche Podcast. The Catholic Psyche Podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not intended to take the place of medical or mental health treatment, therapy, or diagnosis. You should always consult a trained mental health or medical professional for such treatment. And we're recording. Welcome to the Catholic Psyche Podcast. This is Sarah. And Deacon Basil. Sheree. And Chris. This is really weird to try and do this online. We haven't gotten all of these hiccups out yet, have we? No, this is interesting. So what we wanted to talk a little bit about today was just the concept of uh, codependency um, and and relational codependency, a little bit about what codependency is and how it kind of looks within our our, uh, daily lives. Um, And Really, the reason for it, I don't know if, if I don't know your guys' experience um, clinically, but I would say that codependency has been in the background of a lot of the kind of um, conversations that I've been having out in the world. Um, what is codependency during a quarantine? What are the things that I'm codependent on, or how is the codependency developing um, in it? So I think what we had what we had said in our planning thirty second planning meeting before this is that we should probably define what codependency is. Uh, there is a phenomenal definition, and um, it's by Skip Johnson, which is a great name. Uh, but anyway, Skip Johnson, um, and uh, I should say that where I got this, I, I, I should just be honest, where I got this definition is from the first line of Wikipedia on codependency. But um, anyway, it quotes Skip Johnson. Oh, no. uh, codep- <laughs> I'm, I'm a specially trained individual, okay? Uh-huh. Uh, codependency is a behavioral condition in a relationship where one person enables another person's addiction, poor mental health, immaturity, irresponsibility, or underachievement. Maybe one more time. Codependency is a behavioral condition in which a relationship, excuse me, is a behavioral condition in a relationship where one person enables another person's addiction, poor mental health, immaturity, irresponsibility, or underachievement. Now, I Can just want to... It'll be down in the in the show notes down. No, no, no. Can we like talk about that? And, like, oh, oh, yeah, no. That out some more. Absolutely. Yeah, because since that was from Wikipedia, the question is: Is do we agree with that? <laughs> no, it's from Skip Johnson. No, I'm sorry, <laughs> from Skip Johnson. Is, is is that agreeable? Is there stuff to expound upon with that? Well, I think there's Skip certainly Johnson. stuff to. Expound. Isn't Skip Johnson a? I just googled him. There's a baseball player named Skip. Uh, <laughs> He's from the B, uh, PPD family uh, facing emotionally and in, uh, intensive relationships organization. So he's a, he's a therapist. Well, that's good. Uh, but I think the kind of key thing that comes up for me is that one of the uh, kind of classic examples in the Psych 101 textbooks of codependency is, and they it could be the other way around gender wise, but they all the, all the ones I've ever read use the example of the alcoholic husband who is the one who is dependent. And then the codependency is the wife who goes and buys alcohol for the husband for the sake of maintaining the addiction for whatever reason. And that's, so the wife is the codependent person, wanting the, the husband to be dependent upon them, enabling, as this example was, in the poor addiction, uh, enabling the addiction. I'm curious if you guys have heard other kind of definitions that might be a little bit better suited to, <laughs> to talk about. Um, there's the, the parent trying to control the child and living vicariously through them. 
Yeah. Yeah. So for example, the parent who really wants their kid to be the star of the baseball team, um, because that, that is sport, yes. they never, I'm, they I'm want, about there's that. some to be the next Skip Johnson. They want know? them to be the next Skip Johnson. <laughs> uh, Skip be, Johnson. I have no idea, but he's, he's pretty insightful. Uh, no, uh, but the idea being that, so they want them to be the next, uh, you know, uh, baseball star, because they played baseball as a child, or maybe they didn't, but they always wanted to, and they never achieved that. Um, so they want to kind of direct that. Um, in the Gottman model of, uh, of, the, uh, of parenting, in the emotional coaching parenting model, we call that the parental agenda. Um, and so I think that's you know, where I have a certain agenda for how, my, uh, for how my kids should operate. I envision them in a certain way, and I have an agenda that is going to not allow them to develop on their own, but rather I'm going to push them and form them into the person that I want them to be. Mm-hmm. And in some ways you have to do that as a parent, but in, in, in particular, the problem is, is when you can only see that from your own perspective and you're, directing the, you're reducing the autonomy um, of the child and making them dependent upon you and, and direction for you. And all of a sudden they become something maybe they don't want to be because you've taken away their entire freedom. Yeah. So I... <laughs> Sorry, Sarah. Go ahead, Sherry. I was going to say, I find that most of my codependent parents tend to use the uh, part of the Ten Commandments of you must honor your father and thy mother. Yes. Yep. That is is one that's very common that I see. And and I would say that on... on the other side, I've also seen that in religion where you talk about obedience... Um, as being the kind of principal reason why um, people have to act a certain way and be a certain way. Now, there is, let's, let's admit it uh, and be clear. Honoring your father and mother is a very important thing. And being obedient to religious, super, uh, to religious dir- uh, directors and supervision is an extremely important thing too. But that's different than codependency. Absolutely. An example would be because you must obey me and respect me, you're not allowed to ever leave me, and you must take care of me and fulfill all my needs, essentially. Mm -hmm. So there's a book I have next to me that I have not read. Um, It's on my to-read shelf (laughs) called Codependency No More. And the first question on the back of the book is, is someone else's problem your problem? And I feel like that really just gets to the heart of it. It's like, I'm not okay if you're not okay. I have to make you okay in order for me to be okay. Mm. Yeah. I guess from someone who's less familiar with the concept, how is it, how does it differ from just, let's say, poor boundaries? Well, I think that codependency has to have a level of poor poor boundaries in it. Um, And if you really read the classic text on this, um, boundaries by uh, Cloud and Townsend, or boundaries with your best friend's uncle, or whatever they've re- recently published. I'm kidding. I'm just—it's a humorous joke. Never mind. Uh, it, a lot of boundaries books. We're gonna miss. Anyways, the problem with the boundaries book, is, or excuse me, the, the advantage of the boundaries book is that it's really talking about how do you set proper boundaries so that codependency doesn't become a kind of major issue within your relationships. Um, the the struggle with it is that. Codependency is when it becomes the psychological aspect of how do I constantly have a relationship based only or almost exclusively on 
the kind of dependency that we have together. And that can be poor boundaries, but I think it can also be kind of taken to an extreme. I think codependency is the extreme of poor boundaries, Chris, to answer your question. Okay. Yeah, while you all have been chatting, I've been um, just looking up some articles and uh, I, I think it'd be nice to have a contrarian voice, so I'll just assume the, the position. And, you know, there's a whole like a critique of codependency as a concept that I think is kind of interesting. You guys are getting me, getting me going. Now I want to read all these uh, critiques um, about it. I, I don't know. It, to me, it's an, interesting, it's an interesting question about like to what degree do our clinical concepts um, shape the way we perceive our clients or the way our clients' concepts shape the way they perceive reality. So I'll throw that out there as an, as an open question. Um, I don't know. I mean, I'm, maybe let's get into some specifics. Like how, how have you all seen, those of you in defense of codependency, how have you seen it manifest uh, clinically or um, in, in your lives or in well, I, I think the kind of example that Sheree brought up earlier is this idea of, you know, what Freud would call the Oedipal complex, you know, where I am, uh, the mother is dependent upon the child and, and the mother stifles the child's development. It doesn't have to be the mother for the record, but that's what it is. Um, the mother stifles the child's development for the sake of being afraid that the child is going to one day leave. Um, Hitchcock. It's Alfred Hitchcock, psycho. Yeah, that would be that. That's a great example. Actually, if everybody spent their quarantine just watching Hitchcock movies, I think it would be a better world. Uh, uh, but no, that would be terrifying. <laughs> but it's a phenomenal. He's a phenomenal director. Anyways, the key about it is that it's it's I need to relate to my child and make sure they're never going to leave. So I'm going to stifle their exploration in the world or exploration later in life, or they're going to uh, stifle their development so that they are not capable of leaving even if they don't want to. Now, I don't think that second part is a conscious decision, but I think that that's a subconscious um, phenomena that is taking place within the parent um, of the, uh, the, the codependent parent. Yeah, sure. I'll kind of like, um, you know, Munchausen by proxy, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Maybe you could define Munchausen for everybody really quick. I mean, that's the the syndrome. It's a medical uh, t diagnosis where a, a typically a parent will, um, by proxies, where the parent will um, insist on the child's sickness symptoms, and then just the standard Munchausen would be like where someone is unintentionally feigning the symptoms or inducing the symptoms because that's fulfilling a certain role. It's, it's weird stuff, right? It's interesting stuff. <laughs> I'd also like to add that, you know, there, there are cases where people come in and they're like, I think I'm codependent upon this relationship. And it's like isolated to maybe like one relationship in, in their life, you know, maybe in that marriage and uh, the alcoholic and, and the wife buying alcohol. Mm -hmm. But I tend to find that those who have more of a codependent personality that, you know, it might be the mom, you know, stifling the child's growth and not wanting them to leave and wanting them to stay. But I also find that that like goes out and, you know, it's, it could be anything. So now that they're very codependent on their doctor, they're the person that calls their doctor like all through the night, any time of day to, just for any little thing that goes wrong to get an answer to. 
They're the person who can't make a single decision on their own. And they have to ask and get everybody's kind of input. Or they're the person who you might have a client who is constantly calling, constantly can't do anything on their own. If they have an idea, they have to call you to get approval, essentially. Mm. Um, so, I, so I find it comes up in all those different ways and not just isolated to one kind of relationship for those who, who are, are more just codependent um, personality-wise. Yeah, I think that's I think that's really true. I think the other side to it is that you know you can have codependency, like you're saying, in one relationship, but you can also have it in a in a in all relationships. And there is a uh, dependent personality disorder, um, mm-hmm. which uh, is I think a little bit more on that generalized level where it's I can never make a decision without other people's um, kind of deciding it for me or helping me talk through it. And I think I think. You know, the reality is, and I, I, I tell my clients and I tell, I tell everyone this all the time, whenever we talk about a disorder, it's really just any kind of normal behavior taken to an extreme. If you have to ask people for advice on how to make a decision, or if you have to ask someone to go to the store and get you something, even a case of beer, if you're not an alcoholic, you know, whatever <laughs> it might be, there's nothing wrong with that. It's when it becomes, I cannot function without this yeah. uh, assistance in any way that's when it becomes uh, the problem. So, so the definition of a, a, a disorder at some point is when it becomes dysfunctional in the average mm-hmm. functioning of the individual person. Yeah. You and add that it's not a, it's not in the DSM. Correct. Yep. Yep. That's that. Right. You're absolutely right. I, I'd like to, I think that's a great point. Um, Jake and Basil in that um, I, I tend to find people come in and they've just had a breakup or um, you know, their, their relationship isn't going great <laughs> and they're, they're coming in and they're hurt and they're like, I want to be less dependent upon this person. Like, I don't want to have any of my emotional needs need to be met by this person. And that's not necessarily all healthy. Like that's not necessarily what needs to happen. So I feel like some people need to create that or label themselves as codependent just to avoid the pain. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's really true. Um, what, one of the things that I've, I, I remember having a conversation about with, a, with actually a mutual professor of, of Sarah and I's, um, Steve, um, his response to this was codependency is just like relationships. And it's true. You know, he was kind of a, a saying that codependency is not, um, we should mention that Chris had to go check on his breakfast burrito. That's why he's hey, that's uh, very important. Uh, I know it's, hey, it's very important, especially when we're doing these Saturday morning recordings. Uh, but I'm in my pajamas. are you, Yes. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm in a formal cassock. I, you know, it's what I do. So, you know, no, I'm kidding. Yeah, um, I'm with Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but the, the, the point being that there, this pattern of behavior can in certain cases be healthy, and in fact, that's sometimes what agape love in the, in the scriptures is alluding to. But when it becomes to an overextent constantly, I'm always, always, always reliant on other people. That's when it can become um, pathologic. Um, how the, did you get the burrito, Chris? Is it good? Oh, yeah. They came out great. Perfect. Oh, I'm thrilled. Uh, 
<laughs> we are very serious and intellectual people over here. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I, I walk in and we're talking about agape love. I love it. Well, but that the problem can be you can use phraseology like like codependency to justify a lack of um, a, a lack of Christian uh, Christian uh, a, a connection with other people. Um, and well, what am I trying to say? A lack of Christian what love. What are you trying to say? I don't know. You can, <laughs> you can use the terms codependency or a fear of, of being codependent on someone to mitigate your connection with Christian love, for example, or your attempt to, to practice Christian love. Can you so say more about that? I'm still confused. So. Do you know what you're trying to say? No, it's me. Okay. Come on, Sarah. I think, uh, I think I hear you. Thank you. I think you. I hear you. Chris. Tell it back to me. Um, because people are worried about being codependent, that, that worry can cause them to be standoffish and inhibit them from fully embracing the other. Because mm -hmm. if I commit to a relationship, especially the kind of relationship characterized by like Christian love, then, it, then am I going to be codependent? Am I going to suddenly rely on them too much? Is that going to be unhealthy? Maybe I should keep everyone at a safe distance. That's, okay. that's exactly what I was trying to say. Thank you. <laughs> no worries, Basil. <laughs> I'm curious. I mean, Sarah, I'm curious your thoughts on that as being kind of a, a, a temptation then. Yeah. Have you seen the modern dating world? No, thank God. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, all three of you are married. <laughs> Never mind. Um, <laughs> that's what immediately comes to mind to me. Um, especially with the fear of getting hurt. Um, and people being so afraid of intertwining their lives with another. And then that fear of betrayal um, whether it's cheating or divorce or just falling out of love, whatever that means. Um, trials just affecting you together. The, that fear of pain just, I think, keeps people from, from bonding with each other, from diving head on into the great unknown that is marriage and living life together. Um, Yeah, that's really good. It's always interesting for me to hear about this. And I, although I'm, we're all married, I, me. we all work with unmarried. Well, the, you, you said, you know, us three, we all work with unmarried clients. And, you know, I feel like sometimes like a, like an anthropologist when I'm at those young adult Catholic events and kind of stuff, you know, oh, interesting, you know, the mating habits of the young Catholic in their, in their habitat, you know, and boy, I totally hear that all day long, Sarah, they are like, um, there are a lot of anxieties there for sure. I think love is a scary thing for people. And, and sometimes maybe the concept of codependency can be a rationalization for avoiding that, um, that experience of love. I think that really explains why you bring a notebook and a tape recorder to uh, theology on tap and sit in the back there. Chris. <laughs> this explains all sorts of things here. I feel like I probably have um, at, least the no at least the notebook. <laughs> uh, I think the, the the struggle with any of these things is that it becomes um, you can, you can use clinical language or clinical concepts to justify anything. Um, I mean, 
I've, I've seen this personally. Um, but I, how, I mean, how many of you, I, I did, um, how many of you guys had had that abnormal psychology class where everybody walks up thinking that they have some kind of massive psychological disorder because they've, they've read it for the first time, you know, it's, you can, hey. Use, <laughs> hey, you can use clinical language, um, without a fully appreciating what it actually means. And then it can become sort of a justification for things or, or, or problematic. I know that this has become a real kind of popular thing to do is to talk in sort of pseudo understanding of, of, of psychological concepts and then using it to justify all sorts of things. It can be really problematic. Um, oh, I'm just antisocial. That's why I don't I'm just, find I'm just, I'm just introverted. <sighs> Not with that. I'm so OCD. I'm so OCD. Yeah. Um, now, it's I think really it, offensive to people with those disorders. I know, I know. Yeah, you wouldn't. Yeah. All right, be careful. Um, but I think the, the kind of key question that I would have is that there's some evidence as to where this comes from um, psychologically. And some of the research on this kind of concept is that uh, it can come from cultural influences and one's pattern of childhood relationships. Um, and I think that that's kind of an interesting concept that we learn this behavior early and it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to come out. Just because you have a codependent parent or just because you have a dependent parent does not mean that you're going to become codependent or dependent later in life, but that that tends to be the kind of cause, or at least it's what the research is starting to indicate, that there's some, some indication that that might be one of the reasons why it's, why it's moving in that direction. I'm curious if you guys have seen that. I know it's kind of a psychoanalytic approach, but um, a psychodynamic approach, but I'm curious. I mean, have you guys seen that maybe in like a marriage setting, a marriage uh, relational setting okay let me say that i've seen it in a marriage relational setting um sheree i think we're all way in a mess yeah well, I, I was like trying to understand the the, the question um, do people well i think the basic question is like do people bring baggage into their marriages from their families of origin and the answer is emphatically yeah. yes. yes you know yeah. you know what we're going to do from now on is i'm going to tell chris all of my questions chris will translate <laughs> it and then you guys can answer the question for me um <laughs> And then, and then we'll do this with homilies too. Chris can can write my homily. Yeah, there's a language you have to learn. <laughs> speak. It gets worse earlier in the morning. I think it gets a little clearer throughout I know. the day. Yeah, it was like this last nine p.m. Yeah, yeah. I I think I can usually understand you. I just don't think I've had enough coffee. Oh, okay. <laughs> It's not um, you. It's us. Right. Yeah. 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 That's, that's what I've always said. No, um, it's not you. It's me. Yeah. It's, but I guess the question being in, in relationship and in the, in the uh, sort of assessment of relational uh, therapy, what we're doing, what I'm doing is primarily talking about what was your parents' relationship like? What did that look like? And one of the reasons for that question is to say, did you learn certain patterns of how to relate to other people, either dependency or codependency, as well as other things. But did you learn those patterns of behavior growing up as this is what a relationship is supposed to look like? Um, have you noticed that from an EFT lens, I guess, Cherie, this, this kind of childhood development of, of these things? Oh, uh, of course. Like uh, typically, you know, and I do a lot of work around that of diving into, you know, parents' relationships and the relationship dynamic from childhood between child and parent and just how that interacted and how that maybe plays out now in their significant relationship, their romantic relationship or even relationship with, with friends. Cause that could, um, what I tend to find even with friends is that 
if, if they don't hear from the friends often enough or they don't spend enough time or they don't, the other friends don't reach out. There's almost like a, a codependency and an emotional dependency upon that. Um, and, and it feels like a great loss when it's not there. But yeah, so that, that's definitely something that we explore a lot and kind of transfers a lot of times. And sometimes it's different yeah. too. And it, it, yeah, sometimes doesn't necessarily mean that you're codependent. I think that's one of the things that I see a lot is people come in and they're like, I'm codependent and I want help with my codependency. And then I listen to the story and I'm like, nope, you're not codependent. That just is a horrible situation to be in. Uh, so right. what's the difference between a codependent relationship and an insecure relationship? Do you mean an insecure attachment relationship? Yes, I guess. Or like, they're overlapping. I mean, that's yeah. the thing. That's the thing about codependency that, like, I, I'm not trying to hate on it too much. I think it is useful, and actually, this this conversation is helping me see its utility. But, um, I mean, it emerged, as far as I know, as like a popular concept, kind of outside of the 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 uh, tradition of like attachment research, right? And so. I know there's a lot of overlap, but right, like with attachment styles, we talk about different kinds of insecure attachment. And a lot of what I'm hearing, I totally sounds like insecure <laughs> attachment where um, because of um, experiences early in life, we have difficulty using safe people as like um, co-regulators, you know? I think that's that's so spot on because it's like we have difficulty expressing um, so, so we have difficulty using other people as the ability to regulate our interior emotions so then they they provide some way of of regulation that is inappropriate uh, whether it be the alcohol or the immaturity or anything else or, or the addiction can we expand on that and give an example Yes, Chris. <laughs> sure. So, what, what do you what, what do you want an example? Could you use of an that? example of a, what? Well, what is insecure attachment? Kind of more specifically, as an from an example, you know, from an example. Well, to complicate things, there are different kinds of insecure attachment. So there's, there's I mean, sh this is first of all, this is a question should be Cherie's question, but you know, anxious and avoidant attachment. But I'll give you, you know, okay, the classic. Most like ex sometimes extreme examples are helpful pedagogically because they help like clarify the the kind of conceptual territory. So, mm -hmm. what in kids is sometimes called disorganized or even reactive attachment, and what in grown-ups is sometimes called borderline personality disorder, is often characterized by a "I love you, I hate you, I love you, I hate you, I need you, go away, don't leave me, I'm going to push you away, don't leave me, I'm going to push you away," and that indicates like a complete lack of stability in the attachment relationship, right? Like one minute, there's this intense fear that without that person, your life will fall apart. And the next minute, that person's presence is overwhelming. And that person's presence is the threat to your life. Does that, I mean, that's an extreme yeah. case, but does that kind of help? So I Absolutely. wonder if like some of these things we're talking about are less intense versions of that very extreme attachment, um, that, that kind of attachment disorder. Yeah, I, well, like, like, like I said earlier, is that what the DSM is just an indication of extreme behavior, um, you know, taken too far. So it's an everyday kind of experience taken too far. Um, and I think, I think you're right. So it's that, that 
I need you, I, that kind of attach, disattach, attach, disattach, and then I'm terrified when that attachment doesn't, doesn't take place, and I'm anxious when the attachment is there because I, I'm afraid that it's going to leave. So it's this constant, like, I'm going to push you away. I'm going to get really, you know, I'm going to get really close. And I think one of the real insights, and, and Shri could obviously speak a lot better about this than I, but one of the real insights about, for example, the EFT model is that we sometimes go seeking forms of attachment, especially in insecure attachment. We go seeking forms of attachment in the most unattaching ways possible. So I'm afraid someone's going to leave, so I'm going to push them away in anger, for example. But the real underlying thing is that I'm afraid that they're going to leave. I don't know, Shri, is that... Yeah. From an outsider looking into the EFT attachment world, <laughs> yeah. is that accurate? You know, there's, well, I would say that that's very accurate. And the quote kind of from EFT that comes to mind is that for every emotion, there's a need. There's a response. There's a response you'll need from another person. So when I feel afraid, when I feel anxious, when I feel sad, when I feel upset, just even happy and joyful. I have a need to get a response from another person. And, and I think that that's healthy. And for the most, like, I, I think the, the problem is, is, is people sometimes see that need as codependent. Right, that's, that's where that fear comes in that Sarah was talking about even in the dating world, where, where that need continues to not be met and so now I see that as something that I shouldn't have mm -hmm. yeah and is that and that's unhealthy but yeah so going back of that for every emotion there's a need from another person it kind of brings to mind that trope in romantic comedies where one person is like, everyone always leaves me, so I just push people away, so I leave first, and then I'm never hurt. And usually it's the magical love of the significant other who heals them. Yeah. Um, I just realized how little I watch romantic comedies, if that's a trope I've, I've never seen before. But, I mean, that is a trope. <laughs> it does, it is a trope. Not just in movies, but right. that's, that's super common, you know? I think, um, I, I see that, and I mean, to, to broaden it a little bit, I see it in so many ways, right? Like, people who've been, who've had a lot of failure, um, sometimes like to self-sabotage because they can control the failure. Mm. And maybe this is like an example of that. Yeah, it it strikes me that the the connection between insecure attachment then and codependency in general is at its core it's a fear of the relationship falling apart or the relationship not not being as strong. And so in the codependent world you're going to do things to encourage that in that extreme example of, of for example, a, border, uh, a borderline personality disorder, it's an attempt to push them away or pull, it's that constant push and pull uh, of that relationship. But at its core, the thing that connects both of them is a fear of the relationship breaking apart in some way, and then responding from that fear in some, in some dysfunctional way. Yeah. Do we want to define borderline personality disorder real quick? Because we've mentioned it a couple times, but we haven't actually said what it is. You should pull out your, you've got your DSM, Sarah. I have it right here. I've been looking for it the entire time. Oh, she even has it on the page. Is it on the page? Yeah. See, this is, this is why having the grad student 
online is so helpful. You're welcome. <laughs> um, all right. So borderline personality disorder, diagnostic criteria. This is down in the uh, show notes, I should say. Yes, it so will people be. People can read over. Yeah. Um, a pervasive pattern of instability of interpersonal relationships, self-image and effects, and marked impulsivity beginning by early adulthood and present in a variety of contexts as indicated by five or more of the following. Frantic efforts to avoid real or imagined abandonment, a pattern of unstable and intense interpersonal relationships characterized by alternating between extremes of idealization and devaluation, identity disturbance, markedly and persistently unstable self-image or sense of self, impulsivity in at least two areas that are potentially self-damaging, recurrent suicidal behavior gestures or threats or self-mutilating behavior, affective instability due to a marketed, a marked reactivity of mood. So like vast mood swings, that's what that means. I had to translate that in my brain. Um, chronic feelings of emptiness, inappropriate intense anger or difficulty controlling anger, transient stress-related paranoid ideation or severe disassociative symptoms. So to translate, Chris, you're translating. I mean, you, you, you just read the criteria. I think it's, it's good for the, for the listeners. Like, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's an attachment disorder. It has its origins often in like early parent-child relationships. And then it usually plays out a lot in, in, rom in romantic relationships. That's usually how people, but friendships also, that's usually how people figure out about it. You know, there's some good, what's that one book about like, don't walk on eggshells. Stop walking on eggshells. Stop walking. Yeah. Yeah. It's That's a, a good it's, one for, and, and on that note, I actually maybe want us to pivot a little bit to like practical, uh, some practical tips. I mean, how do we all, like, what would you all recommend for people who are worried about codependency or they're worried about, um, if their relationships are codependent, why, either with a significant other or with a, um, therapist or with, uh, with the church? Well, I think, I think that's, that's a just really quick. That's a keen insight there, Chris, because you can be codependent or dependent upon your, your therapist as well. Um, so these are not just cases of romantic relationships, even though I think, or, or parent child relationships or friendships, they can also be professional, um, where you become codependent upon your priest, um, to, to, you know, in different ways. So I, I think the key about this is to think about this in, in a number of ways. Now I just like to kind of maybe complicate it a little bit and just say, or, or simple, I'll complicate it by trying to simplify it. Let's put it that way. I think you have to kind of look at, is this a globalized relationship pattern in my, in my life? So first and foremost, do I have this with every relationship that I'm dealing with, or is it just one or two in particular? Um, and I think that changes the way in which you, you respond to things. Um, then you have, you know, that, that is the first way of kind of responding to it. Is it a globalized thing or is it just one or two relationships that I have? Um, and then from that, you can respond appropriately. Then the question would be, is it the relationships that I, am I the one who's codependent? You know, am I the one who needs people to need me? Or am I the one who needs other people? Uh, am I the one dependent on other people? So am I codependent or am I the one who's dependent? And then I think from that, the proper, the proper remedy uh, can be, can be seeked. Does that, does that make sense? An mm -hmm. anthropo anthropologist, Chris? What does Avagrius say about codependency? <laughs> <laughs> I, 
I actually think there's a really interesting uh, process. My, uh, my, my uh, book on spiritual fatherhood by the great Father Bunge um, is coming on Tuesday. So um, come Wednesday, I'll be able to report a little better about uh, what that is. But I think there is a, a history of codependency, um, or at least perhaps problematic codependency within the spiritual life. Um, so I think, suffice it to say, I don't know yet, but I'll get back to you. Cool. Good answer. Did anyone else have the song, I Want You to Want Me, pop into their head? <laughs> there's so many. Actually, there's, there are a ton yeah. of songs about codependency. Um, Harry Nielsen, you know, like, uh, one is the loneliest number. Like, there's so many codependent, like, songs from the 60s and 70s where it's like, yeah. or, uh, well, no, better one from Harry Nielsen is, um, I can't live if living is without you. Do we have to pay a licensing fee if you sing a Harry Nielsen? F- uh. No, because it's educational. Yeah. So it's oh, good, Harry good, Nielsen. good. And, or a parody. Okay, good. Uh, no, so I think the, the remedy, though, uh, is kind of very important. So, Shuri, I'm curious, from a relationship perspective, mm-hmm. how could people, non-therapists, um, kind of work with, uh, although I think therapists need this too, um, <laughs> you know, kind of identify or at least work on possible patterns of codependency within the relate within a relationship. Uh, perhaps yeah, I mean, this is where my, my mind goes back to what Chris was talking about earlier with boundaries, mm-hmm. right? And in trying to even expound upon their understanding of boundaries. So like one of the first steps is just to do even psych ed on what healthy boundaries looks like in emotionally, intellectually, spiritually, um, even even physical boundaries. Mm-hmm. So read Boundaries by Cloud and Townsend. Link is in the description. Um, I think on the other extreme, the yeah. um, well, to, when when this pattern of behavior is taken to an extreme, that Stop Walking on Eggshells is a phenomenal book. Um, and really, I'll just give you the little secret sauce behind it. It's about setting proper boundaries and standing to those boundaries mm-hmm. um, when they're appropriate um, as well. So I think boundaries is the kind of key. I think the key thing for me is asking yourself the question as to why do I need these people to need this from me? You know, Mm -hmm. why do I need these people to need me? Mm -hmm. What emotional and psychological need do I have that is being fulfilled by their dependency upon me? Or what emotional need do I have as a dependency upon them depending on me? That was very confusing. I need a flow chart, but I think I expressed (laughs) myself. (laughs) Um, but really, yeah. what's that emotional need and why is that not being fulfilled in healthier ways um, in, in a general sense? Yeah, I mean, I think you could, you know, you could do some good CBT around that. Um, like, there's some core beliefs going on there. And from a psychodynamic perspective, I'm thinking about like ego strength, the concept of ego strength. Like, can you get a strong, can you build up the ego so that it's like... Um, or, or resiliency, or we can talk about resiliency, like what would it look like if someone left you? How could you get on with life if someone left you? Yeah, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. I guess I, I go back to that experience in childhood, and, and I tend to find that most of them had witnessed some sort of dynamic like that between their parents, and they really don't have a concept of what, like that's all they know. 
-hmm. that's all they know of, of how to interact or what to do. Maybe they saw their mom doing that or their dad doing that. And and that's what they've learned. So sometimes it's about recognizing that and learning, okay, you can do something different and trying to find ways to being able to envision interaction going differently. Hmm. Yeah. I think that's, that's spot on as well. Um, Chris, from an act perspective, I should say yeah. I'm getting a 10 week act course this next week. It starts. Are you really? Excited. Yeah. It's going to really? be on the basics and then an advanced one on anxiety and depression. Oh, um, can you send so me that? Can you send I'll me send that? you the link. It's me uh, too. I'll send you the link. It's psychwire.com. If maybe we can uh, p- promote them and they'll send us some cash for promoting them, but uh, no, um, Psychwire, and they also have a class on um, motivational interviewing and Sue Johnson is starting a class on there um, on EFT in the next couple of months as well. So it's really nice. Basil, uh, call me after this. Uh, uh, we're done. Okay. <laughs> I absolutely will. Uh, but the kind of key from act is that it's, it's, it's a form of cognitive work, but it's about the core value. So could you talk about that core value that might be, yeah. First of all, I want to show off. This just came in the mail. This is a uh, mastering the clinical conversation. It's a Stephen Hayes. It's a co-authored by Stephen Hayes, but it's wonderful. The act people are doing really interesting stuff on language, language and the theory of language and cognition and language as an intervention. So yeah, mm-hmm. act. Well, I mean, I'm like, I'm not wait, an wait, act wait, expert. Wait, wait. Define act. Act is a, is a third wave cognitive therapy. It stands for acceptance and commitment therapy. Don't say ACT. They'll kick you out. They'll expel you from. They the, will expel you from the ACT group. Um, it's ACT, yes. and it's called ACT because it's about behavior. It's about behavior, and um, so so really quick. You said the third wave, and I'm going to nerd out for just a second. So you have cognitive behavioral it. therapy, which is a sort of close to rationally emotive behavior uh, mm-hmm. therapy. Um, so you've got those as the kind of foundation, and then from that, starting in the '80s, you have these two kind of divergent flowering forth of them, which is dialectical behavioral therapy (DBT), um, which I should say it was originally developed to work with borderline personality disorder. That was its mm-hmm. original yeah. development. I don't know much about DBT. Um, I've read a book on it, but it, I, I, whatever. And then, but acceptance and commitment therapy um, is another flowing forth. And that came out in the, in the eighties as well. Right, Chris? It has a long history. It has a long um, prehistory. It wasn't always called act. In fact, I think, it was first called comprehensive distancing, which was not as snappy. Um, comprehensive distancing. And okay, so I'm I'm doing comprehensive distancing right now during the quarantine. But no, no, sorry, go ahead. I'm not an act expert. I just love it. Mm-hmm. I just love it. That's all. Um, so I, I'll only say what I think an act approach, how the, an act therapist would respond to this. For, for with act, you don't. Try to change your cognitions or emotions. That's the biggest thing. That's the biggest difference between ACT and CBT. So uh, you need to learn how to notice that stuff, though. So you're going to notice, like, these intense feelings of fear that people will leave you, or you might notice your thoughts that um, life will fall apart if you don't rely heavily on this person or this institution. Now the values piece is the second part of it. So act, you know, you're going to notice those. You're going to, the reason it was called comprehensive distancing is because there's an act technique called diffusion. It's one of six core skills that you learn and diffusion helps you put some distance between you and your thoughts and feelings, basically recognizing a thought as a thought and a feeling as a feeling. 
Mm. So you're notice, noticing that. And then you're going to pivot to some valued action. So, you know, with an act model, you're going to figure out what, what's really important for you. What values are really important for you? So, I mean, I don't know, like, what's really important to, to you, Cherie? What's, what's, what do you like to do? What gives you meaning? Gardening. Gardening. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, and you know, we can of course go deeper. Right. We could go like philosophical and figure out like, well, why does gardening give you meaning? Right. And there's probably some even deeper level, but it's like, okay. You know, if I was working with a client who liked gardening and also had codependent tendencies, help them to notice their codependent tendencies, make room for them and then commit to some valued action. So it's like, how could I go garden alone? Even though I, I'm going to be really anxious without this person by my side. How can I have that, hold that anxiety and then do the thing I love anyway? I mean, the classic example is the person with social anxiety and, and the question to them is how could you have social anxiety? How could you make space for your social anxiety? How could you go to the party with your social anxiety and how could you enjoy the party anyway, even with your social anxiety? Does that kind of make sense? Yes, but also, can I just not go to the party? <laughs> I mean, it, you know, <laughs> your value if you prefer to stay home. But the, the thing that ACT people are always look, on the lookout for is experiential avoidance, right? Is the reason you're not going to the party because one of your values is you like to stay home and read and you're going to live out that value? Or is the reason you're not going to the party because that anxiety is in the driver's seat and that anxiety is kind of saying, no, 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 you can't go to the party? I, th I think this is really important. I think... If I, could, if I could oversimplify it, it seems like ACT is a form of CBT with logotherapeutic um, kind of meaning-based and value-based things on top of it. They would um, dispute that, but I agree. I agree. Okay. Well, they're all, they're all behaviorists. So they, you know, it's weird because they're like talking about meaning and value, but then they're like, no, 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 no it's all behavioral. <laughs> but, it, but what's interesting about it is that logotherapy, uh, you know, Victor Frankl's with his paradoxical intervention is it's like, well, what if you just went to the party and worked through that social anxiety itself and were there with it and just really kind of gave into it. So you just go and become, you know, completely self-isolated. The answer is, is that you don't. You would go and you would actually have, you know, you would, you would eventually kind of integrate into it. But I think what's interesting about this is that it's always back to the value. It's always back to what is the value behind it, which is also a cognitive kind of insight um, about what happens, the core belief that we have based off of the past attachment issues that we might have been having um, from our childhood. So what are the core beliefs that have developed my value system and then I'm responding out of? Now, I believe ACT does not attempt to change va uh, core value systems, right? You know, so here's an interesting, this comes up every now and again on like the ACT uh, Facebook groups I'm a part of. People will say, what if my client's values are like being a serial killer? Like, how do I, you know, and, uh, you know, I can see like, I can see like, I'm not going to name names, but I could see like certain, uh, you know, uh, Catholic, uh, professional Catholic speakers hearing about ACT and, and then incorporating it into their next talk on moral relativism. It's like, yeah. oh, you know say whatever your value is that's what you got to live but here's the thing about that um from a from kind of a Thomistic perspective is that like if you dig deep enough actually all of our desires are fundamentally good we just get them kind of disordered by having excesses and um whatever the opposite of that is it, 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 deficiencies yeah yeah deficiencies and excesses of, of desires and we don't order them properly but like 
I remember I went to this great talk by, by a, a, a Thomistic uh, philosopher, uh, David Oderberg, on good and evil. And during the Q&A, someone asked him, he was talking all about good as a theory of fulfillment, a fulfillment of desire. And someone in the Q&A said, like, hey, what if my desire is to, like, you know, kidnap people and, like, torture them in my basement? And his response was so great. He was like, no, 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 you don't really desire that. <laughs> yeah. You know, you're just being a punk. Like, you don't really desire that. And even people who do tremendous evil like what do they really desire they don't ha- they're doing something evil because they're aiming at some good and they don't there's a better way to get that good than to do something tremendously evil so people's values if you dig deep enough people's values are going to be things like connection and meaning and love and responsibility and um spirituality and work and like health their values are not going to be like hurting people and, you know, lying. Right. I, I think, and I just saw the time, so we should probably put a nice little bow on this um, here. So maybe I'll, I'll do a stab and maybe Chris can translate it and you guys can reflect on it. No, no, you got it. (laughs) But I think the key about it is that codependency, they're seeking the good of a healthy dependency upon other people, Mm. um, which is the gospel. And yet, taken to an excess can become problematic. And the core value of reliance on other people in a healthy and non-dysfunctional way is a really good thing until, you know, and however it can break apart uh, too easily if we are not careful. And so keeping that in mind moving forward is always very, very important. Is that a fair assessment? That's great. I like it. Great. And perhaps we can leave it there, uh, but we'll we'll catch you guys next time on the Catholic Psyche Podcast. Bye. 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 Be safe, everyone.